0: Today is the last sermon in our series, Called to be Church. Um, So you're going to have to cast your minds back to the start of the year, and hopefully you'll remember that we looked at various aspects of the things that we are called to as a body of believers. We are called to be one, called to be spirit-filled. We're called to pray, to serve, to grow, and to reconcile. But we didn't quite finish because we still have to consider called to give. So thank you all for being here and for this opportunity to get us thinking and then hopefully discussing together and acting on what can be quite a difficult and emotive subject. So first a bit of background as to how I have ended up here. So it was back in November last year that this sermon first started forming in my head. A lot of it coming from a Bible study that I was doing. I mentioned this to Jonathan, perhaps foolishly, and here I am. Right at the beginning of this series of sermons, Jonathan wrote in the small group study material that in this series we would be exploring what is the church from various different angles, looking at various passages throughout the New Testament. Well, this talk was always going to be a bit different to the others because we are diving into the Old Testament, into the book of Malachi. Malachi. He was the last Old Testament prophet and Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's a short book and it's full of things both to challenge and encourage. If you read it right through, and it will only take about 15 minutes, you'll notice that Malachi's literary style employs the dramatic use of questions asked both by God and by his people. The book is designed as a series of six disputes, six graphic dialogues between a righteous God and a people who appear to have become argumentative and hardened. As you read, you'll notice that God exposes the people's unfaithfulness and corruption with his questions, and that they immediately dispute him and argue back. Almost unbelievable. So, this morning we're going to focus on one of these disputes. Nicky?
1: Thank you. Good morning. The readings from Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation... Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Nikki.
0: Jonathan said in his sermon on the Spirit-filled church back in January that when we read a passage in the Bible, we need to be thinking, firstly, what is it about? And then secondly, what does it mean for me or for us? In order to understand what God is saying here and why he is saying it, I'd like to spend a few moments putting this book into its context so we can appreciate where and how it fits into the overall narrative of the Bible. A quick recap of the history of God's people. They came into the Promised Land and became established under King David and then King Solomon. After Solomon's death, the nation split into two separate nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Why? Well, because of the foolish choices made by King Solomon and his son, but also because of long-standing and unresolved jealousies and tensions between the tribes. Both nations come under the judgment of God because of their repeated disobedience. The nation in the north was conquered first by Assyria in 721 BC. Then, over 100 years later, in 605 BC, the nation in the south was conquered by Babylon. The Babylonians took God's people into exile, for example, Daniel. And a few years after this, the temple, along with Jerusalem... Was reduced to rubble. But in 539, another major event took place. The Empire of Babylon, like Assyria before it, collapsed internally, and the Persian Empire becomes the dominant power. The ruler of Persia, King Cyrus, issued a decree saying that all the conquered people who had been deported to Babylon could go back to their original homes if they so desired. So, Some of the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the temple, but in doing so, they soon met opposition. This group of Jews were harassed and hindered and became completely discouraged, and as a result, the work that they had started on rebuilding the temple came to a standstill, and all of this you can read about in the first few chapters of the book of Ezra. For the next decade, there is no work done rebuilding the temple. This is where the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come into the picture, challenging the people and encouraging them to restart the work of rebuilding the temple and promising great blessing and the return of God's presence if they do so. And in 515 BC, the temple is completed. Yay! And now to Malachi. It's about 80 to 90 years after the temple was rebuilt, and what do we find? God's people have become disillusioned and apathetic. Why? Well, one reason was that the years had passed by and none of the great blessings that God had promised through the prophets had come about. The exciting prophecies about the destruction of God's enemies and about a coming Messiah had not been fulfilled. In fact, what we discover in chapter 3 is rather than blessing, the people were experiencing hardship. And they got to the point of thinking that fulfilling God's requirements and doing what God said was actually pretty meaningless. In chapter 3, verse 14, you'll notice they say, It is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? So the people are saying to God, we did what you said, but there hasn't been any benefit. It's not worked out as you promised. I think one of the things we're dealing with here is the issue of disappointment, deep-seated disappointment. The people had become weary in their faith to the point when they're now saying, it is futile to serve God. From the Bible reading today, we see that one response to the people's disappointment was to slip back in the area of giving. One of the big issues that Malachi challenges is in the area of tithing. Tithing was a requirement in the law to give one-tenth of their income to support the work of the temple and the priests, i.e. supporting the ministry of the Old Testament system. In our reading, God calls them to return. Return to me and I will return to you. And they ask, how are we to return to you? Notice here that the people immediately question. And God's answer is, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And the people then retort with, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. This is powerful language. The failure to pay the tithe was to rob God. Why? Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30 says, A tithe belongs to the Lord. So, if it is his, and you take what is his, then logically... You are robbing him. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So it sounds as if they were partially tithing. They were were just giving a bit. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Why were the people ignoring God's command to give a tithe of their income to support the temple? Well, we know they had become disappointed and apathetic and were weary in their faith. But perhaps they also feared losing what they had worked hard for. Maybe they were just getting their priorities wrong. Now, for some, it would have been downright disobedience. But for others, they were probably being logical and thinking... I just can't afford to do this. If I give a tenth away, there won't be enough left. But here's a great quote that I heard from Bible teacher Mike Beaumont. Remember, nine-tenths with God's blessing goes further than ten-tenths without it. This is God's impossible mathematics. Nine-tenths with God's blessing goes further than ten-tenths without it so we know these people were not tithing they were robbing god but how does this apply to us today is tithing still appropriate christians have different approaches to this and i'm not here to push any one particular viewpoint but there are a few things for us to think about Tithing is most definitely a part of the Old Testament law and covenant. So there's no doubt that it was an obligation on Israel in a way that it is not an obligation on me and on you, because we're not a part of that covenant. But, having said that, before you all breathe a sigh of relief, here are a few things, a few challenges to get us thinking. Did you know that tithing is not a principle That depends on the Old Testament law that was given to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tithed long before the law was given. Way back in Genesis, you'll find examples of them tithing to God spontaneously. This was hundreds of years before the law was given. So, where did this come from? There was something in their hearts that spontaneously knew that this level of generosity to God was appropriate. They weren't following a law, they just wanted to do it. It came from their hearts, generosity expressed in tithing that hadn't yet been commanded. So, what about the New Testament? We know that by New Testament times, rabbis had developed many nitpicking rules about tithing. In Matthew and Luke, we see Jesus challenging them for how they would tithe even the herbs from their gardens, counting out the leaves, one for God, nine for me. Yet, they were neglecting more important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus challenges their attitude rather than the act of tithing. As a Jew, Jesus would have tithed, Jesus fulfilled the law, but he didn't abolish it. This isn't something that Jesus said don't do. He just challenged that it should be done with the right attitude. Tithing requires both love and obedience to God, or it amounts to nothing more than a meaningless ritual. What you and me give to God reflects our attitude towards him, And a giving attitude is more important than the amount given. In Acts and the New Testament letters, there are no commands about tithing. But what we do find consistently is generous giving. In Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians and Timothy, generous giving is consistently promoted as being non-negotiable for Christians. God gives to us so that we can give to others. But here are a few things I think are important to note. Firstly, that we should give of what we have, not of what we don't have. God is concerned about how a person gives. He is pleased when we give generously and joyfully. So the person who can only give a small gift should not be embarrassed. Remember, a giving attitude is more important than the amount given. Secondly, sacrificial giving must be responsible. God wants believers to give generously, but not to the extent that those who depend on them, their families, for example, go without having their needs being met. Give until it hurts, but don't give so that it hurts those who need your financial support. Thirdly, we need to make sure that we don't get confused here with the prosperity gospel. You see, what the prosperity gospel says is that if we give to God, then blessings will come rolling back to us, i.e., we give in order to receive. God says in our reading today, bring the whole tithe in and I will pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. But that's not the principle behind New Testament giving. Why do we give? Because it's the right thing to do. Why do we give? Because it's right to be generous. This is not about prosperity. It's about our attitude and our priorities. So it's important to consider when it comes to our giving have we got our attitude and our priorities right? Back to the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, there is a very strong word used rob. The people were being accused of robbing God through withholding their tithes. It's very powerful, and in context, it's true. Because if they failed to give their whole tithe, they were breaking one of God's laws. So where does this leave us? Because tithing is no longer an obligation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how does our giving, rooted in the New Testament, called to be generous and a cheerful giver, compare to the Old Testament legal obligations? Out of grace, should we not respond with greater generosity than those who were were required to tithe? So why not go and ask God what you should do about it? Tithing is a really helpful benchmark, but ask God what you should do. We should regularly review our own giving and look how it compares with this benchmark. If you currently don't base your giving on a tithe, but rather on the New Testament principle of being generous, please take the time to sit down and work out in relation to your income, how generous you're actually being. You might be amazed that you're giving far more than you thought. Praise God. Or you might be shocked that what you thought was being generous is actually just the leftovers. And another thing I think is important to note is that God's call to give is not a call to philanthropy i.e. it's not a call to give to private initiatives for the public good. It is easier to give just to those things that we're passionate about or to charities that we think are most worthy. But we must give to the work of the church with good grace. And this means giving with no strings attached, giving with an open hand and giving to kingdom work beyond our own personal interests. I found the following in a recent guide on giving that's been published by the United Reformed Church, and I quote, Figures show that many congregations are already generously gifting part of their income to the church, averaging out at 3 to 4% of each member's after-tax income. If giving within our churches were to reach the level of 5%, both local and national church finances would be transformed with huge benefits for mission and ministry. David Guzik, in his Bible commentary on 1 Corinthians, says that the New Testament makes it clear that our giving must be done at regular periods. It must be in proportion to our blessings. And our giving must be planned and thought out in advance. I was reading a book recently by Haley Barton Jones and I came across this quote. If we don't carve out time and space for this, We risk making decisions out of the worst version of ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want the worst version of myself making any decisions about the level of my giving. We must carve out time and space to review our giving. And lastly, our giving must be done in private, not to make us known as generous givers. It must be done in private, But this doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about money and giving. The topic of money affects the life of every Christian, yet it is a subject we rarely discuss. We need to encourage, challenge and help one another to be generous givers and to cultivate a spirit of generosity in us as individuals and in our church. Financial management and giving are not just financial issues. They are also spiritual issues. Many verses in the Bible talk about money because there's a direct correlation between the way we handle our money and our faith. Jesus taught on money and possessions. Simply put, money is a gospel issue. In his letter to Timothy, Paul teaches that having riches carries great responsibility. In the comments in my study Bible, it says, If you have been blessed with wealth, then thank the Lord. Don't be proud and don't trust in your money. Use your money to do good. Be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. No matter how much money you have, your life should demonstrate that God controls the wealth he has placed under your care. So there's a challenge. Does God control the wealth he has placed under your care? Because when it comes to money, we will either worship wealth or worship with our wealth. Money is a gospel issue. Do we worship wealth or do we worship with our wealth? I came across this really thought-provoking and challenging prayer just last week. Father God, I admit that I've often held your words in my head because I'm afraid of what they will mean for me if I let them enter my heart. When it comes to giving, let's not hold God's word to us in our heads, but instead let's allow them to enter our hearts so that we use the wealth that he has placed in our care to do good and for his glory. Ian Oliver preached here two Sundays ago on faith and actions working together. He reminded us that our actions are important because they flow as a natural response to our faith in Jesus. Our giving is an action, and it is important. It flows as a natural response to our faith in Jesus. We're going to listen to a song by Gareth Davis-Jones and Yvonne Lyons. In this song there's a beautiful line, the hands that learn to give are never empty. And this reminds me of God's impossible mathematics, that that nine-tenths with God's blessing goes further than ten-tenths without it. It's another wonderful example of God being able to do what we think of as impossible. The hands that learn to give are never empty. But before we listen, I'm going to pray. I'm using the words that Ian prayed at the end of his sermon. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that today you would reignite our understanding of faith and actions and how they go together. Thank you that our actions not only bring glory to you and joy to others, but also bring wholeness and completeness to our hearts and souls. Our prayer is for that wholeness and it's for that understanding that although we cannot do it all, we can do something. So, in a moment of quietness now, before we listen to the song... Let's think about what God may be saying to us. When it comes to the area of giving, what is God asking of you? And how are you going to carve out time to make sure that this happens?
2: flows with the kiss of life In and out and all around And the water dances in silence again Flooding every corner of this thirsty ground So The wind will blow with a breath of hope Near and far and high above And the sound of heaven is calling again Reaching to the weakest within Higher than the mountain to give